Good morning again. It's a, a great day in God's kingdom, and we're glad that you're here. Thankful we can share in, in some time as we worship, and in just a moment as we draw near to the table over which uh, Christ presides. Charles Foster has accomplished quite a bit in his 53 years of life. He is a respected veterinarian. He's a practicing attorney. He is a professor at Oxford University in England. He's an ultra-marathon runner, and he's also a world traveler. But in his recent book entitled Being a Beast, Foster writes about the most unusual part of his life. You see, every so often, Charles Foster, a man who's accomplished so much, every so often, Charles Foster pretends to be a badger. Uh, Yes, you, you heard that correctly, this man with all these accolades and all these accomplishments, ever so often he will go out into the woods and he will pretend that he's a badger. Uh, He will walk around on all fours. He will scavenge for food like a a badger does. Charles Foster claims that uh, his love of the animal kingdom began really early And he's always wanted to know what it's like to be this animal or that animal. And he claims the best way to learn what it's like to be an animal is to go and to live like that animal. And so for periods of time, he will go and conduct what he calls little experiments. He goes and lives for periods of time out in the wilderness in this case, as a badger. Now, he normally goes alone, but recently he took his eight-year-old son, Tom, on one of these uh, trips. And on a friend's farm, they made a human-sized badger home, which includes a 15-foot-long hole that they would sleep in, an underground hole that they would sleep in. Charles says he spent somewhere around the neighborhood of six weeks living underground like this over the years sleeping during the day and hunting at night like a badger. For Foster, the main part of living like a badger involves getting low to the ground, crawling around on his hands and knees. He blindfolds his eyes, because apparently badgers have poor eyesight. And then maybe the the kicker of all, his diet when he goes out into the woods pretending to be a badger, you know what he eats? He eats mostly earthworms. Yeah, because apparently 85% of the badger diet consists of earthworms. So a grown man crawling around on all fours pretending to be a badger, that is a story so strange and so unexpected, we can hardly wrap our minds around it. What do you do with a news story like that? Well, as strange as that sounds... Today, as we gather together here in this place, we remember and reflect on a story that is actually even stranger than this. Now, for many of us, it's a story we've heard for most of our lives. There are some of us here who who can't remember a time in our lives when we haven't heard the story that's recorded in Luke chapter 2. But just because we're familiar with that story... Just because it it, it calls to mind these images that we've replayed over and over in our minds, just because we're familiar with it doesn't make it any less strange, doesn't make it any less unexpected. As we think about what it means for the Son of God to come and to take on flesh, to walk among us, to live in our midst, and this, to suffer 
to suffer the agony of the cross, to go through what he went through because of my sin and yours, as we'll reflect in a moment as we draw around the table. That story, as familiar as it is, it is as strange and as unexpected as any story that has ever been heard. Today we continue this series entitled Glory in the Highest, and and we are are looking at uh, the words of the angel in Luke chapter 2. And last week we, we went through and read that entire chapter. Today I'll just remind you of, of the words that you see there in Luke 2. The angel appears to these shepherds and announces that a child has been born. And in this announcement, this life-changing, world-changing news, the announcement is that today in the town of David, a Savior has been born. He is Christ the Lord. As we said last week, we're, we're going to spend the, the next few weeks looking at those three titles. So last week we talked about what it meant for Jesus to be Savior, how he enters into the world to save us from our sins. Next week we'll, we'll finish this little series by talking about what it means for Jesus Christ to be Lord. But right there in the middle there is this word, this term, Jesus as Christ, Jesus as Messiah. And that's what we'll focus on here this morning. So that word Christ, Christ and Messiah, the the same word, those words are used interchangeably. Uh, The word Messiah is really just an English transliteration of a Hebrew word that means the Lord's anointed one. So as you read through in the Old Testament, there are all of these prophecies, all of these passages where one prophet or another would be talking about the anointed one of Christ who was to come, the Messiah who is to come. We might think of uh, Isaiah, for instance, when he talks about Emmanuel, whose name means God with us. Well, Matthew helps us understand the birth of Jesus as just that, the fulfillment of that messianic prophecy. But the Greek word for all of this is Christos, from which we get our English word Christ, So what's important about that is that when we refer to Jesus as the Christ, we're also saying that he is the Messiah, same word. Or vice versa, when we say Jesus is the Messiah, we're saying he's the Christ. It's all a way of saying that he is the anointed one sent by God. And so as you look through your Old Testaments, there are a couple of different offices that are associated with this idea of anointing. In the Old Testament, you find prophets who are anointed for God's service. And they have a a, a proclamation. They have a word that God gives them. In all the prophets, you you hear uh, this kind of statement in one form or another. And the word of the Lord says unto me. And so the prophet is just pictured as that mouthpiece of God. Sometimes making predictions about the future, but many times just making a, a proclamation about the present. So that's one office. You also have uh, the the, the priest is anointed for his service. And what does the priest do? Well, the priest mediates uh, on behalf of the people. He he takes the offering from the the people and he takes it before the Lord and makes the sacrifice. And he is a mediator. He's a go-between between the people and the Lord God. And so we find there in the the Old Testament that Aaron and, and his sons, they are anointed for this, this great work that God calls them to. And of course, the, the final of those offices, you have prophet, you have priest, but also the king. 
And the king of Israel, there's a rich tradition where on inauguration day in Israel, you would have the king and he would be anointed in front of the people and there would be this great scene of jubilation and, and, and celebration because God, God had put his hand on this particular leader. And, and sometimes the leader was good and God honoring and sometimes not so much, but it didn't change the fact that God had a, a call for that individual. I had a call for that man to, to lead in a particular way, and so the anointing is associated there with the king as well. And so I say all of that to say when we talk about Jesus being the Messiah, when we talk about Jesus being the Christ, we're saying that in essence he is the fulfillment of all of those offices, that he is in a very real way prophet, priest, and king. And, and I don't want that to just sound uh, academic. I mean, that, that's, that's great Bible study stuff. But what, what really matters about that, I think, for our lives is this, that we, we would say that, one, Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of, of the prophet of God means that he is the final and authoritative word that God speaks on our lives. Some would say that Jesus is a prophet, and what they would mean by that is that, that he's only a prophet. They say that in some way to diminish his divinity, and that's not where I'm going with this at all. I hope you know that. But I, I think it is fair to, to echo what the Hebrew writer has to say in Hebrews chapter 1, that in the past God spoke to us basically through the prophets, in different seasons, in different times, in many various ways. But now, the Hebrew writer says, God has spoken to us through his Son, the one through whom all things were created, and the one he has appointed heir of all things. So when we say Jesus is the Messiah or Jesus is the Christ, we're saying that he is the final authoritative word of God, that in Jesus we have the full revelation of who God is. Simon Peter would go on to say that he has given us everything we need for life and godliness through knowledge of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, And so we can see how Jesus fulfills this office. But also this, when we say that Jesus is the Messiah, we're saying that he is is the great high priest. And again, the Hebrew writer has a lot to say about this. We're saying that, that Jesus is the one who mediates between God and man. He is fully God and he is fully man. And that qualifies him to be that emissary, that mediator. But what's so powerful about that image is that Jesus isn't just the one who makes the sacrifice, who tends to the sacrifice and oversees it. No, according to the Gospels and echoed by the Hebrew writer, Jesus himself climbs up on that altar. Not only is he high priest, but he is sacrificial lamb. He is the lamb of God. And so the Hebrew writer says, speaking of Jesus in Hebrews 9 verse 12, he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all, by his own blood. We have this new covenant in Christ that we will celebrate and give thanks for in just a moment. We have this new covenant that is a, a better covenant because it was purchased and won through the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus. So when we say that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, we're also saying he is the only one who can mediate between God and me, that my sin problem is so great, I can't do anything about that on my own. I need a mediator. I need Jesus, to be my Messiah, to be the great high priest. But also, more than any other of these motifs, the image of, of the Messiah is one of, of royalty. It is, it is the fulfillment of that office, not 
as prophet and priest so much, but the dominant image is that the Messiah is the king. He is the ruler. He's the long-awaited, anointed one who would fulfill all of the promise that God made to David. He would be the Davidic king. That's why, as we said last week, so you have Matthew and Luke, and they record the genealogies of Jesus. You remember? And we said that, you know, a lot of times when we get to those places in our Bibles, that's where we can sort of fast forward. Because it's a lot of so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so, and and it gets a little sleepy if you're not careful. But what we said is that the important part of those genealogies, among other things, is that both Matthew and Luke trace the lineage of Jesus all the way back to David. And that's significant because they're trying to paint this picture that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David. He's the fulfillment of all that kingly language and what, what the king actually looked forward to all the, in all those Old Testament stories. It looked forward to this moment when God would crown Jesus Christ as Messiah and king. That's why in Matthew 1.1, in Matthew's telling, well, the, the first title really given to Jesus in the New Testament, he says, he's the son of David. That's significant. That's messianic language. But in his own day, in his own day, many people did not acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. You read through the Gospels and you see some who respond in faith, right? You see some who say, yeah, I I will follow you, Lord. You have the disciples, and even though they they waver and they they struggle to understand exactly what what it means to follow Jesus, they're, they're all in. You know, they leave those those fishing boats, and they leave their nets, and they, they, they come to follow him. But there are so many others who push back, who, who don't follow Jesus. And, and we might ask the question, well, well, why is that? If Jesus was the Messiah, why, why, why did so many reject that claim? And at least one primary reason is that the, that the title Messiah was interpreted differently by others. What I mean by that is that the the understanding of what the Messiah would come and do that was popular in the consciousness of of the Jewish people at the time of Jesus, that's radically different than what Jesus actually came to do, the kind of Messiah that he actually came to be. Jesus never denied being the Messiah, but as you read through the Gospels, there aren't many places where he just stands up and clears his throat and says, I am the Messiah. There are, are very few times where he does that. His preferred way of referring to himself is son of man. He likes that one a lot. But in the Gospels, he doesn't use this language of Messiah quite so often. And the reason is because in the first century, the expectation for Messiah was at a fever pitch. And so many people, Simon the Zealot would be a good example, they were expecting the Messiah to come, and in particular, he was going to come and he was going to clean house. He was going to march into Jerusalem and he was going to drive the, the Romans from the land and bring back in this golden age, the glory days of Israel. That's what the Messiah would come and do. So just as they sang about David in the Old Testament, that he has slain his tens of thousands, right? So too are they now expecting the Messiah to come and to usher in this, this era of unparalleled military victory because the Messiah is the son of David, And by the birth of Jesus, this expectation was acutely fixed on getting the Romans out of Jerusalem. This expectation can be seen in a lot of different places. I want to show you one place that that may be new to you. It was new to me up until recently. Uh, This is a first century uh, B.C. document, okay? It's called the Psalms of Solomon. Not Song of Solomon, but the Songs of Solomon. It is not canonical, it's not biblical, so we, we don't believe this is an inspired document, okay? So we're reading it today just as a, as a historical document. 
Uh, But we're reading it because it paints a picture of what the expectation was about the Messiah right in the period of time leading up to the birth of Jesus. Again, the first century B.C. is when this was written. And so I I want you to, to hear this and listen for the language that's used to describe who the Messiah was going to be, at least in the, in the idea, in the minds of someone uh, writing at this period of time. Psalm of Solomon, Psalm 17. It says this, Behold, O Lord, and raise up unto them their king, the son of David, at the time known to you, O God, in order that he may reign over Israel and gird him with strength, that he may shatter unrighteous rulers, and listen to this, that he may purge Jerusalem from Gentiles, Romans, who trample her down to destruction. With a rod of iron, he will shatter their substance and destroy all the godless nations just with the word of, of his mouth. And he shall gather together a holy people. That's good. He shall not suffer unrighteousness to lodge any more in their midst. So, so driving out unrighteousness from the land. Uh, no one will live there who is wicked. He shall know all of them, that they're sons of God. He'll divide up them according to the tribes in the land. No sojourner or alien will be living in their midst. And he shall have the Gentile nations to serve him. So, so push them out, maybe push them out of power, but also force them into position of service. And he shall glorify the Lord in a place prominent above all the earth. And again, he will purge Jerusalem, making it holy as of old. And he will be a righteous king over them, taught of God. There will be no unrighteousness in his day, for all shall be holy. And their king, the Lord Messiah, there's our word again, may the Lord hasten his mercy upon Israel, may he deliver us from the uncleanness of these unholy enemies, the Lord himself is our king forever and ever. Okay, so again, as long, thanks for, for hanging with me there, um, that's, this is not an inspired psalm like we would read from our psalms in the Old Testament, but it's a document that gives us insight into the way, the way that people expected the Messiah to act leading up to the birth of Jesus. So did you notice all the purging language? I mean, how could you not? Cleanse the land from, from, from the, these unholy residents, mainly talking about the Romans, who in the minds of, of just about every Jewish person in that day, they've defiled this place. They don't respect the word of God. They don't respect Torah. They don't respect our, our practices of worship. So there's this expectation that is a little bloodthirsty, and to be fair, you find that in some of the inspired writings, in, in some of the, the Old Testament. And there's plenty here where, again, you can see the, the reasoning. Hey, we just want this place to be righteous again in the eyes, in the eyes of, of the Lord our God. So back to why Jesus doesn't use that language of Messiah very often. He doesn't use that language. He doesn't ascribe that title to him very often because, as this psalm makes clear, the prevailing expectation was for a military leader. The prevailing expectation of the Messiah was that they would have a, basically a Jewish version of Norman Schwarzkopf, you know, or, or, or General Patton, if you're from a different generation, or whoever it might be. You know, this picture of this conquering, victorious military leader, that was, that was the expectation, and that's the association with the idea of, of Messiah. So he's going to come in, he's going to defeat all the enemies, he's going to whip them into shape, he's going to either drive them out of the land, or he's going to make them our servants. And so when that's the popular expectation of what it means to be Messiah, it's not that Jesus is trying to keep it a secret so much. It's just he's trying to not create unnecessary conflict with what he really came to do. 
If Jesus went around claiming to be the Messiah all the time, it would be prohibitive to his actual mission. We put it another way. Sometimes we we reduce all this down by saying things like, you know, the Jews were looking for a, a physical kingdom and Jesus just came to establish a spiritual kingdom. And there's great truth in that, but at the same time, it's not quite that simple. Because to be fair, the Jewish expectation of this physical manifestation of the kingdom was deeply spiritual. It had everything to do with their faith in God, right? Everything to do with how they read the scriptures, okay? So to just write it off as, well, they didn't miss it. It was all spiritual and not physical. Well, no, no, not exactly. And on the flip side of that, Jesus did come to seek and save the lost. He did come to redeem us from our sins. But at the same time, he he came to establish a kingdom that has an earthly dimension to it. It's not solely earthly, but there's an earthly component to the kingdom of God. We're a part of that today, I believe. And so as as we look at this, we we say, you know, Jesus didn't come to, to purge the earth of Gentiles. No, he came to save humanity from sin. And this certainly confounded the expectations of the people in his day. So back to Luke 2, this, this angel, uh, he really warns about the ways in which Jesus will confound those earthly expectations and, and concepts of, of kingship. After announcing that the anointed king has been born, in the, in the very next verse, in Luke chapter 2, verse 12, the angel says, this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. The king, God's royal Messiah, the anointed one, is found here. Okay, so wrapped in cloths, as we said last week, not robed in glory. Found uh, lying in a manger, right? Not seated on a throne. And the angel says this is a sign. What is this a sign of exactly? How does this function as, as a sign? What does this point to? toward? Well, it's a sign indicating the kind of Messiah we have in Jesus. He is a king, but he's, he's a lowly one, at least by the standards that we typically ascribe to kingship, right? Again, he, he's, he's born in, in, in a manger, born into poverty. The ideal of the Messiah is, again, this conquering sort of hero, you take up all the stories of David and you put them on steroids. Well, that's what the, that's what the Messiah is going to be. You know, in, in, in the understanding of like every little Jewish boy at the time, you know, this wasn't an era with LeBron James or Steph Curry or the, the kinds of athletes or people that our kids look up to because they see them on the screen. No, what captured the imagination of, of the Jewish people of that day is who the Messiah was going to be and how glorious his reign would be. And into that expectation is born this real Messiah who is anointed for a unique and unexpected, and we'll just say it, strange vocation. He's anointed for suffering. One scholar says the role of Jesus as God's anointed one meant that he would suffer and he would die and he would rise. His glory and right to reign would not be established with a dazzling campaign against Rome, but through humility and through suffering and through death. 
like I said, this is another story that is so strange and so unexpected, we can scarcely wrap our minds around it. It may be familiar to us, but that does nothing to change the unexpected nature of this story. The rabbis and the teachers of the law in Jesus' day, they they missed this critical truth about God's anointed one because they did not put Isaiah 53 at the center of their messianic expectation. Isaiah 53 is another place that is probably familiar to many of us this morning, but it speaks not of a victorious, conquering general. No, instead it talks about one who suffers, one who comes from humble origins, one who is well acquainted with grief and familiar with suffering. You see, the popular expectation in Jesus' day is that the Messiah would be the one who would bring about suffering, namely for the Romans. But the real Messiah comes along, he doesn't bring suffering so much as he bears it. He takes it upon himself. He suffers on our account. Again, the idea of a suffering Messiah would have sounded as strange to first century ears as the man pretending to be a badger. They, they, just, they just didn't expect it. The servant of Isaiah 53 has no beauty or majesty to draw us to him. Instead, he is despised. He is a reject among men. He bears our grief and he carries our sorrow. He is like a lamb being led to slaughter. He is cut off from the land of the living. He is pierced, cut through because of our transgressions. And he is crushed for our iniquities. And they said, no, this is not the Messiah. God's anointed one. He doesn't come from Nazareth. Anything good come from Nazareth? Give me a break. This man eats too much. You know, he, he drinks too much. Uh, he doesn't teach his disciples to fast. While we're at it, he doesn't even wash his hands before he eats. And you know who he eats with? He eats with sinners, tax collectors, and publicans. Can you believe it? He heals people on the Sabbath of all times. And you know what I heard? I heard he drives out demons by the name of the Dark One. That's what I heard. No, he's not the Messiah. Messiah doesn't say that he'll tear down the temple only to rebuild it. He's not the Messiah. Messiah, the Messiah will be a conquering general. The Messiah will be victorious. No Messiah of mine is going to die on a cross. And Jesus says, did not the Christ have to suffer these things, and then enter into his glory. Suffering Messiah is indeed a story so strange and so unexpected, we can scarcely wrap our minds around it. That's precisely what we need to do in this moment. We need to let this story settle into our hearts. We need to not go through the the formality of this moment as if it were so familiar that, that we're just going through the motions. No. We need to hear the impact of this unexpected 
strange but good news this morning. In just a minute, we will gather around the table and we will we'll pray together and, and observe communion. Before we do, we're going to sing one song. And this song is a reminder of the all-sufficient nature of the sacrifice of Jesus. It's a reminder that in Christ alone, we have salvation. It's the story of Jesus told in song. Let's worship him together right now. In Christ alone, my hope.